welcome to Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it and then we uh, have a little talk about it. What'd you pick out for us, Lindsay? We watched 1989's When Harry Met Sally. 1989, great year. Because you were born in that year? And it's the year The Simpsons started. We got a lot of things out Mm -hmm. of it. License to Kill, which has been on the show. Another <laughs> yeah, great right. movie. I feel like, no- oh, Batman. The Tim Burton Batman was 89. Yep. I think of When Harry Met Sally as being kind of a foundational text for, like, some of the best rom-coms that came about in the 90s. Like, sort of that golden era of just feel-good American rom-coms. Which is kind of funny you say that, because you were saying earlier that you see a tie between this and Annie Hall. I think that there's definitely some Woody Allen comparisons to be found. I mean, that was over 10 years earlier. I almost feel like this is the first film to kind of deliver on the promise of Annie Hall Mm. in some ways. Like, I feel like there's kind of a dearth of good romantic comedies in between the two. I mean, maybe there just isn't one that I've seen. But just the idea of, like... You know, these two people with great dialogue in New York, you know, very conversational. This is a very conversational movie. And I think it's hard not to be a little reminded of Annie Hall, even if they're very different in other ways. So what's your history with this film? Is this one that you grew up with? I don't think I saw it until I was in high school, actually. Because it it's a little raunchy. It's, it's a little risque. It's rated R, which I had forgotten. Yeah. I think of it as a PG-13 film. And I think it's only it's really only for the language. There's nothing graphic in it. And I don't know if it I don't know if it would get an R rating now. I think they've gotten a little softer on that. I don't know. I still feel like you're allotted like 3 F bombs in a movie before yeah. you become a, a, an R. And it's a, but they, which is such an arbitrary thing. Like it's so odd to me that when Harry met Sally and, like, Saw 4 have the same rating. But, it just doesn't uh, make sense because it's just all in dialogue and it's not its not even that ribald of dialogue. Yeah, and it's just so humanist and it's like a movie that I feel like people should see. I feel like it encourages empathy in a lot of ways that, you know, maybe a lot of modern rom-coms don't necessarily. It takes place over several years in these people's lives, so you get to see them transform and kind of go from, in Harry's case, from dumbass to empathetic, full human person. Sally, Meg Ryan's character, is a little uptight, but that's really kind of her main flaw, is that she's uptight. But beyond that, she's she seems like a good person. Right from the get-go, she's a very relatable character, whereas he is just has that big bag of grapes and he seeded grapes and he's just spitting out the car window. Yeah. Does he spit one of them into the car window? Yeah. 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 There's a lot to talk about with this film, especially within the context of other Nora Ephron movies that we've covered on the show. But um, I do want to touch on some of these ads that are on the tape. Uh, this is an ancient copy of this movie on VHS. So ancient that... If you remember when you hold a VHS, there's one side that has kind of a flap on it, and that's the side that goes into the VCR. Ours had to come off entirely for us to be able to play it. Yeah. This is one that I I got used for the purposes of this podcast because we didn't have a copy on hand. I made the mistake of just choosing the oldest, most beat-up looking copy because I thought it would have the most interesting ads on it, which it does. But, uh, buyer beware, if it looks old and banged up, 
on the outside, it's probably yeah. as old and banged up when you put it into your VCR as well. The flap wasn't the only problem. The audio was so bad. It was like, pitchy, yeah. To the point that I was not even wanting to watch it. It is entirely conversations between two to four people. Mm-hmm. There's and, not really any action. Yeah, it's very dialogue-driven, very character-driven, but... For a movie like this, it's just wall-to-wall dialogue to kind of go up and down and kind of wavery, you know? Like, that's kind of how our <laughs> copy sounded. Like, someone was messing with the pitch all the way through and kind of warbling it. And it had some wavy lines in it. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was interesting. Yeah, so the bad news is it was almost unwatchable. The good news <laughs> is we got a Diet Sprite commercial at the beginning of the movie. I even forgot that Diet Sprite was a thing. And they were treating it like it was the most revolutionary product ever, which makes me think that it was fairly new to the scene when this tape came out. Yeah, they're they're treating it like a real commodity. It's this fairly big-budget ad. It kind of reminds me of the... Uh, the Schweppes ad that was on the beginning of the License to Kill uh, mm-hmm. tape with John Cleese, where it's yeah. like, how much money did they put into this ad? Because it almost feels like a Super Bowl ad. Like, she's... Yeah. What, what exactly happens in the story? So there's a woman that gets a soda, and she's in a kind of uncertain place in a relationship with this guy, and they get onto a train, and she tells him, I need a change. And then she just disappears. And he doesn't know it's so that she can get... A diet Sprite. That's the change that she needs in her life. And he's drinking a diet Pepsi, which is weird because Sprite is owned by Coke. I don't know. I mean, sometimes they do that. They name check each other. That's kind of interesting. Like, she... He he's substandard because he drinks the diet Pepsi. Was this the era of the crystal Pepsi? I have no. That might have been a better. I don't know. Not to give feedback to this twenty-six <laughs> year old ad. Uh. Anyway, she leaves, and he kind of thinks she's leaving him, and she goes on this whole wild adventure to get a diet Sprite. She ends up having to like run on top of the train and. She eventually bursts back into their train car, their yeah. room in the train car, and he's kind of panicked. Then there's this realization that she just needed a refreshing diet Sprite. <laughs> Sean just looked all of this up. And there's a whole <laughs> long list of the history of all the different names for diet Sprite. And diet Sprite isn't the original name that was rebranding in the 80s. It's now Sprite Zero. Man, I could really go for a Sprite Super Chilled right now. Oh, jeez. <laughs> or a Sprite on. On Fire, which is a ginger-flavored variation marketed as having a burning sensation. Introduced in Hong Kong in 2003. Why would you want a product that has a burning sensation? Speaking of products that you don't necessarily need, we've got this very baffling ad, well, trailer, I should say, teaser trailer, for a movie called Texasville. Which is basically Peter Bogdanovich's long delayed sequel to The Last Picture Show. There's about 20 years between these two movies, and I guess he was kind of on his back heels on his career to yeah. have done a, this. I guess I don't even, I didn't even remember that there was a sequel to that movie. It's not a very, like, sequelable movie, uh, to make up a word. But this ad is just listing out the names of the actors with audio in the background. It's literally like a black screen with it, names fading in and it's out. It's all text, yeah. It's like Jeff Bridges. Cloris Leachman. Anyway, we don't know anything about it other than it has something to do with Texas, thanks to the ad. 
And then the last thing we get is a little teaser that we're getting a music video after the end credits. Ah, yeah. Which is a first for us, as far as I know. It Had to Be You by Harry Connick Jr. I just associate him with Will and Grace, because he had an extended guest starring role on Will and Grace. What was his role? He was Deborah Messing's boyfriend. It's basically footage of the movie intercut with Harry Connick Jr. kind of serenading this sexy girl i think those were really common and it was interesting because harry connick jr was essentially replicating this love story in the music video and they were doing kind of split time between harry and sally there's a little bit of a hidden detail that you don't find out until the end of the music video that the entire time harry connick jr is singing in this one in this one uh setting Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal have been there the whole time. Just sitting out on the patio. They turn and write down the barrel of the camera. I know why you don't think those music videos were that common. They were huge on the Disney Channel. Because Disney Channel would have all these different music videos that were intercuts. Or they'd have some original video content with the sing- a singer and then scenes from whatever Disney Channel movie or other movie that Disney was promoting. I've definitely seen music videos that are intercut like that. Like the Seal, uh, Kiss from a Rose music oh, video for Batman a, Forever. That's such a great one. Um, I just feel like it's a lot less common now. Oh, yeah. To kick off the movie here, you know a lot more about these interviews that I do. The, the movie is kind of punctuated with these interviews of kind of elderly couples, for the most part, that kind yeah. of talk about their first date or kind of just recollections on their romance. Yeah. I mean, I don't know a lot about these, but I had read that Rob Reiner collected real stories from people, and who who knows how faithful he was to the stories, but supposedly the stories that you hear in these little documentary vignettes are real but just performed by actors obviously excluding harry and sally at the end i wonder if that's something that was added to nora efron's script or if it because it works so well as sort of punctuation between these big time gaps or Mm -hmm. you know after something really big happens in their relationship yeah and it it wraps up so nicely with Harry and Sally sitting on that couch being interviewed. It complicates this whole idea of being interviewed and giving your version of a story and what happened in your life and how you fell in love and then actually seeing it take place on screen and seeing all of the details that get left out of these retellings, right? And so that's kind of an interesting thing that I noticed on this more recent watch. Pretty common in Nora Ephron's work is just this idea that you know, just the different perspectives of the same relationship. And you're kind of always getting half the story, mm-hmm. depending on who you're with. Yeah. You know, whether you're with the Billy Crystal or Tom Hanks mm-hmm. and his friends or the Meg Ryan. The way these characters meet Harry and Sally is Harry is in a relationship, right, with one of Sally's friends in Chicago. Yeah. One of her really great girlfriends. Yeah, and she's uh, driving to New York anyway, so her friend kind of just asks, can you take my boyfriend with you? Yeah, and this is kind of a co- post-college thing. She's graduated and she's going off to her first big job. Yeah. And the city and it sounds like Harry's kind of doing the same thing and so he hitches a ride and she doesn't really know him and it's kind of funny because it's supposed to be a really good friend of hers but she doesn't seem to know him from Adam and he's kind of dickish 
super dickish. Like, yeah. just right off the bat, makes no effort to be friendly. Well, or he's kind of friendly, but he's friendly in that obnoxious young guy that kind of wants to be nonchalant, but is also sort of proving himself and wanting to sort of set a tone kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like I've met people in that stage of their lives and, and, I, I recognize Harry. Yeah, yeah. I think he's definitely realistic here. It's just surprising. I mean, I wouldn't say unlikable. You compared him to Tom Hanks in, in something like You've Got Mail, where he is sort of... He's playing kind of a bad guy, but he he's able to exude so much likability that you look past the flaws. Yeah. Supposedly, Nora Ephron based Harry largely on Rob Reiner, the director, and she based... Sally on herself, right down to, like, the picky ordering thing you were saying. Yeah. So there was an interview that she had done uh, much later in life after this film where she was on a plane and it, uh, she she was on a flight and she had asked for, I can't remember what it was, it was something like a drink, and she was so, so exacting with exactly what she wanted with it, and the flight attendant kind of made a crack that she she reminded her of that character from When Harry Met Sally. And who knows if that's really true. But I can it, see it, that happening. But it's kind, of, it's kind of funny to think about, you know, that you're writing yourself into this film and somebody that you can relate to, but I think that's kind of thinking about people in your life and yourself and putting that into the film kind of make, brings them to life, right? It gives them a, a little bit more oomph than I think other they otherwise would have had. Absolutely. And it's kind of the perfect way to meet these characters because they're forced into a situation together. And I don't know, Billy Crystal's comedic timing, like it's, it's almost, at, at the beginning of the movie, it almost seems like it's in danger of him getting all the funny lines, but she really holds her own in these early scenes, too. Yeah, especially playing a character that's written to be pretty uptight and still managing to bring that sort of sweet girl-next-door-ness to it and and kind of a turn of um, sort of sharp humor where she's kind, of, she's kind of equally matched with him. Like, he doesn't completely trounce her, which is nice. Yeah. There's There's a balance to it. So this road trip does not go well, but they do get to New York, and they do not see each other for five years. We get the first of these time jumps, and they next meet, uh, appropriately, given that story you just told on an airplane. Uh, and this is kind of a fun little bit, also. It's kind of the beginning of this trope that we see in a lot of rom-coms, where it's sort of a hate-to-love evolution. Like, they start yeah. off really loathing each other. Or at least she loathes him. She definitely loathes him. He's kind of just curious and interested and just wants to have fun. And you can see he's lightened up a little bit yeah. over the last five years. And he's had more life experience, it seems like. And it, he even introduces the fact that he's engaged to someone to be married. Yeah, they're both in serious relationships when we meet them. Yeah, yeah. And because this is a, a, a story told through conversations, it's kind of interesting to track where they are in their respective, like, love lives as mm -hmm. we do these time jumps. Right when you're kind of getting to know them again, it jumps another five years, and you start to sort of meet, you know, they're kind of both, um... I forget, after this five-year jump, we kind of meet their friends, right? Like We, we meet, meet their friends, and we kind of learn more about their lives, but it's interesting because this... 
So they meet on the road trip. The second time they meet, they meet at the airport and they take this flight together and she sort of hates him. But they're both set up in happy relationships and they're really excited about the people they're with and that seems to take up a lot of their lives. And I think that's part of why we don't really see their friends and their friends aren't really useful for that scene anyway. But the next time we see them, they're with their friends talking about their unhappiness in their current relationships. It's just not going well for them. Yeah, and, and these friends are played by Carrie Fisher. Carrie Fisher, I think this might be her one of her best roles. She's so good in this. And yeah. it's great seeing her in this after having seen her in The Man with One Red Shoe where she was wasted. She was basically just a sex object yeah. in that film. She was completely wasted in that. And in this, she gets to kind of shine and be pretty funny. It's so refreshing to see... I mean, you, you mentioned this too, just... A best friend character that's not just a sounding board for the main character. Like, yeah. she kind of has it their own independent life. She has her own arc within the film. And she actually... One of the interesting things is that she she reaches relationship success before Meg Ryan figures gets her shit together. You yeah. Know? And that's something you just don't normally see. Normally, the, the friend is kind of the comparison to see how great the main, the lead's life is. And they have a goofy, dorky friend who's just never, you know, doing that well. And that's why they're kind of dependent on them. Harry's friend, Jess, played by Bruno Kirby, who, um, just like Carrie Fisher, sadly, is not with us anymore. But he's great in this. Um, it's so appropriate that, you know, there's that scene with the, the double date where obviously they, sh they need to be with the opposite people. Kind of putting Mary yeah. and Jess together. I mean, this is later in the movie, but... Yeah, because Harry's trying to set uh, Jess up with Sally. Sally's trying to set Marie up with Harry. Because they're both in denial, right? Yeah, that they belong together. Exactly. Really economical, I think, of Nora Ephron to do that. Because there's basically four characters in this movie. I mean, you get tangents with like they're the other people that almost are are like love interests to them but are not you know the real thing and mm -hmm. this is a movie that makes a great use of split screens i mean i think the the big one is when they're watching casablanca together harry and sally i love that scene i've never done that with a friend have you is that just something that happens in movies where you watch something like usually like a TV yeah. show or something and you're on the phone with somebody. You know, I talked about doing that with friends, but I've never actually done it because I remember planning out with a with a good friend that we were going to watch a movie together over Skype, but we ended up not doing it. And I, I feel like that's one of the, I, I feel like the inspiration probably comes from this movie. Just because it's such a sweet scene, the idea that they're able to watch this movie together regardless of where they physically are. And we have a debate about whether they're watching it on TV or they or they queued up their VHS copies of Casablanca. Yeah, it's not super clear because they they very well are probably watching it on TV just because that makes the most sense. Like they both like tuned into it and they happen to be on the phone and they're like, "Oh, let's just watch this." Cuz when you look at the screens, it seems that at one point when Bogey and Ingrid Bergman are walking into the mist, into that fog. On one side, they disappear faster than on the other. And that maybe that's just me reading into it. Maybe it's a clarity thing because they have different TVs or whatever. But the timing isn't exact, which makes me suspect that it could have been a VHS tape. Yeah, and she does have that card catalog of all her tapes in alphabetical yeah. order. I've always loved that. 
But the reason I bring up uh, split screens is there's that great scene. I mean, this I feel like this is just one of many scenes that kind of deliver on the promise of of the four main characters sort of being in these parallel relationships. When the the couple that's now married, uh, Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby, they're in a split screen with Harry and Sally, just both on the phone with their respective friends. <laughs> and when they hang up, uh, they're I love that line where they're just like, "Promise me I'll never have to go back out there again." Like the, <laughs> like, as just if, the like, battlefield of dating. Exactly. It's such a. I, there's so many different moments in this film i think especially since you're seeing them over different points of their lives where you can find them to be so relatable and the things that they say you know that you like almost anybody could identify with in some way or another even if it doesn't directly apply to you um there's there's a way to relate to it because maybe you knew someone like that or whatever i feel like when you mentioned a movie like When Harry Met Sally. I mean, there's like definitely quotes from it that people mm-hmm. remember. Uh, and obviously the performances of these two leads are very great and charming. But I feel like the two big things, or maybe just the one thing, is this diner scene. The oh, I'll yeah. have what she's having scene. Yeah. And it's amazing to me that it's such a simple gag. And yet it's so memorable and it's so funny every time I see it. Well, and it's so funny because she... The, it's in high contrast to the, when they were on that road trip and you see the two of them when they're really young and she's more insecure and she kind of has a harder time talking back to him. Especially about sex. Yeah. Like he's very... Because like, he's in your face. I'm yeah. so experienced. And, You've never had great sex and yeah. things like that. And so it's in high contrast because in that scene early on they're in a diner and then here we see them in a diner again but she's got all of that that much more life experience behind her she's gotten to know him better and that she just completely owns him and puts him in his place yeah with this with basically just proving that she can fake an orgasm as loudly and, in public as yeah. possible and essentially that any woman could so his sense of pride and his belief that i'm so perfect well maybe you're not maybe you need to check in a little bit more yeah it's great for a lot of different like character reasons that are kind of like contextual to the movie i feel like the scene is i mean if you look up when harry met sally on youtube for clips like half of the clips are just this diner scene and when you divorce it from context you're really missing out on you know, Sally is just not normally the kind of character who would do this in public. Yeah. And she's doing it entirely to puncture his balloon. And it's just so brilliant. And to cap it off with a line like that. From Rob Reiner's mother. Oh, that's right. I forgot that detail. It's just, it's a perfect scene. And uh, it is, I mean, I understand why it's the, it's like the best remembered thing of this movie. But um, I encourage people to, to watch the, watch it in context with the rest of the movie. <laughs> And the, I guess the other thing that people always remember is the ending. You know, that we've followed these characters with the highs and lows of their relationships and, like, trying to just have a platonic friendship and sort of failing at that. And he freaks out when they finally yeah. have a physical relationship. And this New Year's Eve sequence, I feel like, is played so deftly, mm-hmm. you know, and subtly, too. Like, I, the thing that I think of is when you have, like, this countdown to the new year... You expect the big moment to hit when it reaches Mm -hmm. zero. But I love that these characters kind of, you know, 
and it just plays into just the grounded quality of the movie is they ignore the countdown and they ignore the fact that it's a new year and just keep talking. Yeah. And sort of finish their thoughts. On a bummer note, the scene where Sally, she's dealt with her breakup, her breakup from that guy that she was with for so long before. She dealt with it really great and she was feeling really fine about it and nobody could believe it. And then one night she gets a call from this guy and he says, by the way, I said I didn't want to marry you. I said I didn't want to have kids with you. And I didn't, And at the time I was like, generally in my life I didn't want that. But actually I found somebody else who I want that with. And so she, at that point, that's when the breakup to her is real because then it becomes personal. Like, oh wow, he didn't want these things with me. Not that he just didn't want these things in general. Which just seems so devastating, right? Because then it's like this qualification of the breakup is being about something wrong with you. But then Harry shows up because she's so upset and then he takes advantage of her and they have sex for the first time. And yeah. that's one scene that's always bothered me because I you kind of dislike Harry, uh, Harry at first, but then he wins you over and you think he's really great. And then you realize, actually, he's still kind of screwed up person and he cares about her but he also really cares about himself and that kind of comes through in this scene and kind of a little bit of what happens afterwards like that next morning where he gives a little bit of a brush off in the morning and you can kind of see the horror in his face after when they're cuddling together afterwards and he's just like and you can understand like i guess it's it's your best friend you know, you think, did I just ruin our friendship and stuff? But it's like, you could have just not done it at all. And I think we're supposed to believe as audience members that he's just kind of caught up in the moment. But she's clearly so just drunk with grief. It's like yeah. sleeping with someone that's drunk. And that cutaway to him, I mean, it's it, that's sort of, I guess, another iconic sort of snapshot of the movie is just when he's staring up at the ceiling after they'd just done it. With that oh shit face. Yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't know, I don't, I really don't feel sorry for him in that moment. No, and it's, it's interesting to me to watch this film and then see the scenes afterwards where we're clearly not supposed to be mad at Harry, because it's kind of, I mean, they are consenting adults, like she, you know, it's, she wasn't drunk, she was just really upset, but he was taking advantage of her emotionally, because he knew how vulnerable she was, and especially in a situation like that, this major blow to her self-confidence to thinking why wasn't I good enough to have kids or Mm -hmm. to marry and that kind of thing something that she hadn't been forced to question before that one's unfortunate like of all the scenes in this movie I feel like that's the one I could have done without but then it is the one that sort of sets everything in motion to get us toward the end where they do decide they want to be together I think if I was to defend it I would just say it's kind of in character and sort of keeping with Nora Ephron's love for writing flawed, very human yeah. characters. And that's the thing. Yeah. And it's clear from the very beginning of their relationship. I mean, he even set, calls her an attractive person mm-hmm. when he's already, you know, when he already has a girlfriend. And I feel like it's within character. Like, yeah, it's a real bummer of a scene. But I feel like you needed something big to motivate yeah. the first time that they hook up. And you also, I guess it adds a lot of realism to it because again these are these are characters that aren't 
How do I put this? Like, I feel like part of why I'm not that into recent rom-coms is because they're, instead of being complicated characters, they're caricatures of people. Or even caricatures of characters from other better rom-coms. Yeah, and that's that's where it, when you lose that complexity, they're harder to relate to, and so you're not as emotionally involved. And I think in this one, because they're really complicated and they're pretty flawed people, they're easier to kind of... You can either picture yourself or someone you know a little bit. And I think this movie also benefits from being so stripped down. I mean, you would never see a rom-com like this now. I mean, the closest thing I can think of, and they're not rom-coms, are the Before Sunrise, uh, Before Sunset, Before Midnight, those movies that are so just... It's all it is is conversations between people and just all of these like story machinations are stripped away. So it's just the relationship between these people. And um, I feel like rom-coms today are maybe just too complicated or too hung up on being story-driven rather than character-driven. One of the things that you mentioned before, this idea that a lot of... This takes you from hate to love. These characters kind of transcend in their feeling, especially a Sally toward Harry. In newer rom-coms, you often see that love-hate relationship where they go from despising each other to suddenly being in love at the end of the movie, but it's over such a short time period that it doesn't make sense. Mm. Like, it's just not realistic that that relationship is actually going to go anywhere, whereas with these guys, we're with them over several years of their lives. We get to see them change as people and develop and and become more complicated and learn more about how to understand and empathize with other people. We get to kind of see that transformation so you can understand how they would ultimately fall in love. And it makes a little more sense. And it's kind of nice that we get that time to see them develop. What do you make of Harry's thesis at the beginning of the movie? And this, this is kind of the whole crux of the movie, this idea that a man and a woman can't have a platonic friendship. There's always going to be some sort of desire there on one side or another. I just don't really buy into that. And there are a few reasons. One, way to play into the gender binary and assumptions about sexuality kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, that's the whole idea of, like, relationships, like, resting on being between men and women. So, I mean, that I think that dates this movie a little bit. I guess... One of the things that I would say, and this is regardless of orientation, is that just because it's possible for you to have sex with someone doesn't mean that that person is going to inevitably be attractive to you. There are so many different things that attract someone to another person that I just don't think that it's it's that inevitable that men and women can't be friends. Although, in college, we did joke about something that we would call the proximity theory. Whereas <laughs> if you spent enough time around different people, then you would at least entertain the idea of what it would be like to, to be involved with them. Interesting. But that's not really the same thing. I feel like that's a little different because it's ent- entertaining idea and actually being unable to have a friendship with someone is really, really different. Yeah, I think it's pretty bogus, too. Um, But I think it's there mostly to tell you 
about how Harry sees the world. Because he's kind of a binary dude. Oh, he's totally a binary dude. Um, I mean, I with, think with regards to all bit. things, I think just not 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 just sex and relationships, but he's he's a very like you know this is the way this is the way I see the world. This is how it is. Like he's a very you know yeah. And I think it plays to his character really in a, in a strong way. And I think Sally doesn't quite buy into it as much. Yeah, definitely not. Which is interesting. But it does tell you a lot more about him and his character than it does about necessarily the movie itself. I do wonder if the movie believes that that is true. Because, I mean... I don't know. This movie does kind of prove his point. They were not able to have a platonic friendship. And, I mean, and... But that is that just true for them? Well, it also is true for everyone else in the movie. Everyone in the movie is somehow you know, in a relationship with one of the other characters. Yeah, I guess so. So it does make, maybe it does buy into that assumption. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't have other guy friends. No, she doesn't. But uh, that's also kind of a convenience, right? Because yeah. Because then, then, the, then the film would actually have to challenge it more to question that in yeah. those relationships. And I don't think that's the duty of the movie. I mean, I like this stripped-down approach, but it is interesting to, to sort of think about um, I I sort of doubt that Nora Ephron thinks that, but I don't think so. Who knows? Because she's friends with Rob Reiner. Isn't yeah, she? that's a great point. I mean, yeah. and, she, and Billy Crystal. Yeah, exactly. She was friends with so many different men that she worked with. I don't think she necessarily believes it, but it, it's. And I think it's interesting that the the film is a kind of a conversation, or they they th- that that conversation about can you be friends or not comes up at multiple times and there's a point where Harry actually starts making an argument for just being friends. It's also worth noting that maybe this is this is Nora Ephron expressing how she thinks Rob Reiner feels. That's another thing to maybe think about <laughs> since maybe. it's based on him. And according to Rob Reiner, he had he was working on this movie after a really bitter breakup or divorce, and oh, he cute. found his uh, his current wife in the making of the movie, and that's when the ending changed from them going their separate ways to a happier ending. I mean, because that, he essentially believed in love again. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm curious to know if that's actually true or not. I mean, unfortunately claimed in an interview many many years later yeah and and unfortunately Nora Ephron is not around to, to give her side of the story but um but that is interesting if that is true and it's interesting if it's not true too yeah <laughs> it's just an interesting story all the way around but I think a lot of I, I think a lot of films and fiction try to address this question of can men and women just be friends I think it's kind of a silly question because it just it depends on the people involved you know, how they see the world and how they see each other. All right, Lindsay. Well, I think I know what the answer is going to be, but we have a little rating system on tape heads. When Harry met Sally, do you buy it, rent it, or tape over it? I buy it. I think for, for some of the flaws of this film, I think overall it's such an interesting story about kind of complicated people. Having that chance to see them develop over the course of the, their lives is so interesting and kind of unusual. You just don't see that very often. And it really adds a lot more depth to this comedy than you would expect normally. And I just, I love it. It's, it's, real, it's really fun. I kind of notice things on each watch that I didn't before and so there's something that to always kind of get out of this there's a little bit more that you can you can enjoy and it's funny 
Yeah, I say buy it too. I agree with pretty much everything you said. I don't know. I don't know if I have much to add. I mean, Nora Ephron's screenplay was nominated for an Oscar for a reason. It's great, and Rob Reiner is very smart in his direction to not really get in the way of that. There's a lot of like long single shots of just these actors doing their thing, and there's not a lot of gimmicks to kind of get in the way of that. And it just, it really holds up. I mean, this is, you know, going on 30 years old at this point, but it is still so relevant and, and so funny and insightful. So I think that this is uh, one of the best rom-coms out there. All right, Sean, what are we going to watch next time? Well, Lindsay, as you know, um, my 10-year uh, high school reunion recently took place. Uh, I did not attend because uh, we were in Lake Tahoe and I didn't really feel like going. But I thought that I would commemorate 10 years out of high school uh, with one of my favorite high school reunion movies. <laughs> uh, that is Romy and Michelle's High School Reunion. Oh. 1997 starring uh, Mira Sorvino and Lisa Kudrow. I also thought about Gross Point Blank with a friend of the show, John Cusack. That's also about <laughs> a uh, high school reunion. You wish he was a friend of the show. <laughs> Allegedly a friend of this show, John Cusack. Someone once said it. Uh, I feel like the difference between those two movies is Gross Point Blank has a lot of fans already, whereas I feel like Romeo and Michelle, you know, it's it was a big hit in the Lynch household growing up with my with my family but i feel like it does never got enough credit it's sort of a an underseen 90s gem in my mind so i thought that uh, i'd dust off my copy and we'd uh, give it another shot i only know the cover of that film because i remember seeing it on the shelf at blockbuster well you're in for a treat uh yeah. it's a very very fun movie all right I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can hear more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our other episodes at tapeheadspodcast.com. You can email us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Please rate and review on iTunes. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time.